Photo Mission Exposure, a podcast for photographers. Well, welcome Colin to um, Photo Mission Exposure. This is our episode four. Um, so we're going to kind of get right into it and I want to go back to when you first started in photography. So basically, when did you first pick up the camera? <laughs> yeah, so uh, I can't give you any age exactly, but it was somewhere around eight, nine years old. I uh, went on a family holiday into northern New South Wales and mum and dad at that stage had convinced to buy a 35mm uh, camera and I uh, was given you know, the task of taking photos for the day. And I got home, had a great time, went to develop them, and mum discovered you know, a series of photos of clouds. <laughs> from that moment forward, I was uh, confiscated from Scoff. having the, the camera for a while, but um, I eventually got it back again through uh, the latter part of primary school and uh, kind of fell in love with the mystique. And uh, it really probably got, uh, got a bit more scientific for me in high school. So it was probably around that, 15 year old mark roughly where I really started to fall in love with the process so the technical side of photography so at the early stages it was the artistic piece and then later on it was all about how does the relationship between speed and flow and and what is what's ASA even mean but (laughs) at that stage uh, to make a photo and and how you could slow time and and see things differently the way I see them was probably the catch so yeah it all sort of I would say it um, metabolised for me through school. So what was the big hook for you? Was it that, that mystique? That was the hook of that really drew, drew you in? Yeah, I think um, if you try and make it a technical uh, number, our eyes see somewhere around 24, 25 frames per second. So you might say 1 25th of a second on repeat. Uh, and with a camera, you could slow that down to 30 seconds if you wanted to and really expose you know, star trails and, and see things at night that you couldn't see with your eyes. So on the slower shutter speed side of things, I was, I was seeing things that I, I couldn't see. Uh, and then on the other end of it, motorsports and sport in general uh, fascinated me shooting that at 500th or 1,000th of a second. And again, seeing uh, a capture or a moment in time that just wasn't possible to see with my, my eyes raw. And so it gave me that flexibility to explore my environment uh, in a different fashion. And that's what really fascinated me. So when, I mean, when did you decide that um, photography was going to be something you're going to pursue in your career path? Yeah, um, that's a difficult one because I think uh, it was through high school. There were two things that, that really got me in the darkroom. So I did my apprenticeship in the darkroom. Uh, we were given black and white rolls of film and we developed them ourselves. And there were two things that stand out for me. One was the smell of fixer. Yep. Uh, smell a fixer in the morning. Fantastic. <laughs> I was like, mm, it's really pretty good. <laughs> Not that I had any substance abuse or anything, but in high school, I thought that smelled pretty cool. And the other thing was being in a locked dark room with girls at the time. So it was sort of meeting uh, other people and, um, and the smell of fixer was where I, you know, the magic occurred. But the career side of things, I, I don't really... Not sure when it twigged that I was going to really turn a dollar out of photography. Maybe somewhere after shooting sport for a couple of years, it was kind of become a reality that I was earning enough money to start supplying my own equipment uh, and, and good equipment at that. And then I saw once I'd established that and those costs were out of the way, I could start to make some profit out of it and, and really turn it into a career. So well, maybe about 15 years ago was when that started to turn for me. 
Yeah, so you've really hit it. And I mean, obviously, the top of photography you do days will be different. And we will touch on that and the mm. Canon Collective because it's I've been a big part of your life as well for the last five years. Um, but the was it the sport? Was that was, was that was the thing that drew you in? Like, was it the the action? Being able to freeze that action is that's the thing that kind of yeah attracted think, you uh, to it. Being a, a growing up as an Australian uh, lad in Brisbane, my father um, was a truck driver and he'd work Monday to Friday, and on the weekends we'd watch football NRL as it's known these days. Um, rugby league and we watch a lot of Australian touring car so these days that's the supercar championship and I, I felt you know I, I grew a love for, for sport in general cricket was another one that was quite you know impressionable to me and I went to a lot of games at Lane Park back then or Lakeside Raceway and I thought you know there's two ways to get closer to the action one is to you know participate and play um, but there's those guys down there with cameras that are pretty close to the action and that looks like a bit of fun too. So it was kind of, it was a way of getting more involved in that sport without physically participating because apart from being, say, an umpire or a linesman or a marshal at motorsport, really the only other way to get close to the action was to be in either the capture of the video or stills. And, um, yeah, it was really, really cool the first time I set foot on the grass at Lane Park to, to really kneel down and start shooting the Broncos and... Yeah, it was a, a moment at that point where I was just, you know, look around at the crowd and you hear the roars and you felt like you're a part of the team and, and that was kind of my hook and it was like a drug from then. So I had to get involved in as many sports as possible because mm. I, I didn't know which one was going to be the most fun. Yep. Uh, as it turns out, I can answer that question now. It's definitely State of Origin. Okay, yeah. Well, <laughs> you've got that whole the whole atmosphere there as well. And, and look, like you said, being on the field is a totally different. It's a game changer because it, you see the sport from a completely different perspective. I mean, the other thing with photography gives you the ability to be able to relive those moments. You've captured those moments and you can go back and look at those images over and over again. And I think for a lot of people, that's why the hook for photography is. They love that, being able to um, relive things. So what type of equipment were you shooting on those early days? Was it 35mm film? Yeah, so uh, in, in 98, 99, it was 35mm film, uh, mostly black and white due to cost. Uh, colour film still had a, a higher cost than black and white. Uh, and developing, and it was hard. It was harder to home process um, colour film as well course. because temperatures were so critical. And absolutely, yeah. Uh, so all of my early work was black and white. Um, but at that time, all the newspaper print was black and white. Really, yeah. Uh, very rarely would they invest colour into a sports photo. Uh, so to shoot black and white was fine. It was the EOS 10D was my first step in digital. Uh, before that, I had uh, V1s and and so forth. So one series cameras. Uh, but going across to digital, like a one series digital was somewhere in the $15,000 range for the body and a 10D was about $5,500 at the time. So these days it's an 80D is the equivalent there, about $1,000. So yep. still 5000 was a, a fair investment for a pro body for a 20-year-old. Um, and then from there I changed over to 5 series and then from 5 series into 1 series. And yep. And what, what did you find that transition from going from the film because you had pretty good grounding in film and you understood film and how it works and the limitations of it, crossing into the digital field, I mean, what, what were, did you see immediately the advantages and the challenges you had to overcome with the digital side of it? Definitely. Um, when, so digital's really been around since the, the late 80s, if you really look into it, early 90s, it became accessible. And I think the first time I used a digital camera was about 1996. Uh, and at that stage, film far superior to, to a digital image because of resolution, essentially. 
film was kind of unlimited in its resolution at that stage. And a lot of the entry-level uh, digital cameras, or accessible digital cameras, I should say, in the mid to late 90s, had fairly poor quality lenses because of the, the technology cost behind that. Yep. So going to my first serious digital camera was being a 10D. At that point, we're talking six megapixels. It was definitely less resolution than film. Uh, however, it gave me the capability of shooting, and I think off the top of my head, it was around six frames per second, which in film would cost you, you know, every time I clicked, I said, that's a dollar. Yep. So I was shooting $6 a second. So yes, the 10D was a, a slightly less resolution uh, output, but again, remembering that I was doing sport, most of it was published in black and white, uh, 72 DPI was was uh, double what the print resolution needed to be. Uh, and so on that basis, I was, I was gaining hundreds of more photos per sporting game than I was able to afford to take earlier. And, and of course, because you've got limitations, you've got to roll the 36 in the camera, you're changing film. And obviously digital, I mean, and cards back then weren't as big as obviously the cards you can buy today. I mean, there's you know, ridiculous size cards today. And, um, but yeah, like it's, it's that just, I think that's what made digital grow so quickly. The fact that it has got a lot of advantages over Absolutely. film. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think with film, as I said, every time I clicked, I said, that's a dollar. And that was my process behind that was that's how much the films cost by the time I develop it and produce at least a yep. six by four, uh, which I might use as like a proofing print. Um, so if it's a dud, I've lost a dollar, essentially. As we're in the digital aspects, every time I click, it's really cost kind of nothing because even if you take an entry-level bottle, uh, entry-level model, sorry, which is capable of taking 100,000 photos, if you paid $1,000 for that camera, you start dividing it down, it's costing yep. you less than a center photo, yep. and that's to wear a body out, you know? So compared to film, it's, it's kind of everyone can afford to do it, you know? So, and I think, look, too, in the heat of the moment, like in sports and stuff, where, you, where you, um, you're working at a very tight timeline because things are happening. The sport doesn't slow down for you, for the photographer, to, to let you catch up. And even when you're loading film, you can, you know, if you're trying to rush it, you can tear the film. You can have all types of things go wrong. And digital just gives you the, the ability to basically just keep shooting without having to really worry about the gear. And um, so what was the, I mean, those types of cameras, what type of lenses would you normally use on those? Yeah, in the early days with a 10D, um, I, I learned fairly quickly that L-series glass was an important factor. And this is well and truly before I worked for Canon. Um, pretty much everyone in sport was shooting Canon. Uh, and the reason for that was the glass was far superior. Uh, and when you're looking at 300 and 400mm 2.8 prime lenses, there was a good $5,000 cost difference to the other brand. Um, so pretty much everyone was shooting Canon. And there was no... Um, quality advantage going the other way. In fact, Canon had the better service at that point. But I remember my first L-series lens was the 17-40. to Yep. And I think at the time, because uh, I was working in camera retail, not for Canon directly, uh, even staff price on that lens was about $3,000 or $2,500, so it was quite an investment. And before, in, in terms of telephoto, sorry, I was using a, a fairly old 55 to 300, which is a, a lens that was produced in the 1990s, uh, so fairly old. Uh, and then I, I got that 17 to 40, and all of a sudden I loved shooting wide because my quality kind of went through the roof. It was everything was super sharp, uh, and I was really impressed with it. And from that moment forward, I was bitten. So I kind of ended up with a 28 to 300 L series, which is not that common these days. Uh, but in sport, it was perfect because it gave me a little bit of wide through moderate and telephoto on the field. Because uh, remember also in the 
1999, 2000 era, only had one body because uh, of the affordability of it all. Um, and the, really not many people had two bodies, to be honest. And if they did have two bodies, one was film, one was digital. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so even around the Sydney 2000 Olympics era, which uh, a lot of the people who I learned from were pros at the Olympics, um, that was kind of maybe the first sporting event in Australia that saw a lot of pros with two bodies. As where today, two bodies is the bare minimum. You should probably have three to five um, in the sporting genre. Yep, yep. And look, and, and lenses, like, and when you shoot, and changes from the position you're shooting at, so you're shooting on the field, having that ability to have that bit wider um, stuff when things get really close to you is advantage because if you've got something like a 400mm prime and they're right up in front of you, you're going to get some great eyeball shots and stuff like that, but it gives you the ability, to obviously, to be able to get some of that, the still keep shooting as the action comes up to you. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The um, I was going to say the having that single body back in those days you had to have the range on straight away and if i wanted to switch over to the 17 to 40 that was time and it was also a chance of introducing dust and and on the football field there's often um, you know uh, moisture and it could be raining and there was a lot of different complications there as where these days to shoot a game it's pretty standard to walk out with a 70 to 200 on one body and a 400 mil 2.8 on the other um, so if you actually look in and even just google some um, some sporting photos from around the year 2000 era, you'll notice a lot of them are shot at apertures of around f4 or f5.6 because the 2.8s were kind of not quite there yet. And, and the ones that were there were quite expensive and not as accessible. Yep. So you'll notice actually in time when digital started coming in, even some of the photos from the Sydney 2000 Olympics, a lot aren't shot at 2.8. So there's actually quite a bit of depth there. Uh, as where today, if you turn over the back cover of any newspaper and look at the latest sporting photo, pretty much guaranteed it's all 2.8. Yep, yep. And I think the styles of photography has changed. Like, And I know with sport, it's one of those areas of photography where you have to really, you're pretty much shooting straight out of camera. You're not really really allowed to do too much to the image. That's true, yeah. It has changed a little bit more recently. Um, so, yeah, sport now is is essentially jpeg only yep um there are you're allowed to shoot raw if you'd like to um but in terms of the time uh asset the the problem that time can give to you in your workflow uh, now you really don't have the ability to do raw process and upload um these days it's all jpeg out of camera yep because i mean what most people don't probably realize now is that um the modern sports photographers actually shooting on the field those images are quite often actually being uploaded from the camera <laughs> straight to straight to they're going out on the web they're going out on you know um, different you know social media outlets and there's a really demand for that that instant gratification that instant fix which you can never get film because obviously you shot the game you didn't have images until it, you know everyone was drunk and celebrating and falling over before you even had images uh, now basically as it's happening you've got stuff going straight up onto the web that's right. Um, if you look at time constraints, if we talk the Olympics just because they come in four-year lots, around Sydney 2000 it was probably the first digital Olympics, really. So the majority of cameras were digital. Um, and to go from the Kathy Freeman's gold medal, for instance, uh, those photos of her celebration, the first outlets would have had those somewhere around two hours after the actual action occurred. And that was considered quick. That was jumping in cabs and getting out of there and yep. you know that sort of thing. Um, because the internet, although it's been around for a long time, wasn't that great back then and FTP servers and things weren't so awesome. Uh, if we fast forward to Beijing, Beijing was kind of the first connected 
Olympics, that's 2008. So all the photographers' pits started to have ethernet cables installed so they could sit there and use a laptop, bring in those, those images, whether yep. they be raw or JPEG at the time, and get them uploaded to an FTP server. And it was probably not until London 2012 that they started to take picture editors and, and so forth off-site completely. So they didn't have to be at the London Olympics. They could be sitting uh, in their lounge room in Brisbane, yes. Australia, and receive those images, um, as you said, very fast. I think the, it was around 13 seconds was the time to get a worldwide coverage on an image by the time London 2012 rolled around. And that's a lot to do with um, the internet's, you know, the, the telecommunication speed increase, but also to, the, to do with the workflow of the cameras and the hardware involved. And I think that book has changed so much. And look, the, there's so much great equipment around. You talked about how expensive some of the equipment were in the early days. And for people getting into photography today, it's actually it's actually quite cheap. They can get in and get some pretty good kit. And even you know things that kit lenses that come in. Some of them, you know, some of the kit lenses are a pretty good quality. Like I mean, some of the images that people are getting are quite amazing. And then if they do want to start getting into the more professional lenses, um, the prices have come down dramatically. Um, Massively, definitely. Um, like I said, a, a one series body many years ago was fifteen thousand uh, dollars. One series body now is half that. Yep. Uh, and in terms of the the, the glass, like my first two point eight lens was about fourteen thousand dollars for a prime four hundred mil. The same thing today, which is five versions newer than the first one I bought. Um, much lighter, much sharper. Yep. You know, it's kind of it's kind of funny that, but they're now around twelve thousand dollars. So not as big a saving there, but considering how much tech change there's been, it's it's actually quite significant. And as time goes on, things get more expensive. It's kind of rare for things to get cheaper yep. in a sense. So, but it kind of has in the camera technology. It really has because, like I said, what sits behind that glass now, like something like you know one DX Mark II or something like that. that um, when you look at the bang for your buck that you're getting out of a camera like that, it's quite phenomenal. Um, and it's just it just always amazes me. Like I said, where where are we going to be in 10 years from now? What, what, what are people going to be shooting with? Yeah. I mean, there's been obviously a bit of a push to mirrorless and that type of stuff. Um, we've seen that um, starting to come through. And, and I think mirrorless is not quite not quite there, but it's, it's like every new technology, um, it'll get better and better and better. It's got to, it's got to prove its path, I guess. Um, it, mirrorless, in, in sort of my uh, view, is an alternative the quality's there, yep. uh, the usability's there, um, but it, it does have some pros and cons. So you've got to play one off against the other and really decide what you're going to use the camera for as to which way you'd go. Um, so the DSLR market's still significantly larger overall, uh, but I can see a point where compact system cameras, CSC, will uh, will take more precedence than DSLR. Yep. So... With the um, sports, what would be, I mean, out of all the stuff that you've shot, and you've shot a wide variety of sports, what you're saying State of Origin is like a really highlight for you is that. What other areas of sport have you shot that you really like have to pinch yourself and say, this is just unbelievable, I can't believe I'm here <laughs> capturing this? Yeah, um, you know, I should explain. The State of Origin side of things, I think if there's two sports that I absolutely loved as a child, and that was you know, touring cars or supercars as it is today, and, and NRL. So with State of Origin, it's probably post uh, Lane Park's upgrade to Suncorp Stadium. Um, it's such a fantastic football stadium when the crowd gets behind Queensland at Suncorp Stadium. If you could bottle that, 
it's just it's and un- that's hard to, that's hard to capture in an image that kind of yeah. I know I know you've got a, an image that I've seen of you, that you've shot and it's a massive big crowd shot um, so that shot you know that does try and capture some of that atmosphere which is hard to get in a photo so that shot how did you actually achieve that one because that's quite a yeah, that's uh, that's so that's actually from a, a fan day. So the Broncos at the start of each year have a fan day where they can you know, members can come along and meet the team, signings and that sort of thing, and they put them all at one end of the stadium. Broncos in front to take a essentially a group photo, and the crowd becomes the backdrop to that. Um, and so my colleague Greg was tasked with taking the main image of the Broncos and the crowd, and I was auxiliary to that. So I decided to go to the opposite end of the stadium, so up behind the old big screen. In metre terms, including angles, that's about 140 metres away from the front row of the other end. And I took a 200 to 400, which was new at the time, with the 1.4 converter built yep. in, so about a $15,000 piece of glass. I was you know, interested in trying it out. Yep. And uh, and got down there and decided to, to really focus on the central part of the crowd and my first thought was, this is like a Where's Wally print yep. photo. And it got published pretty widely. Uh, and it's reappeared, reappeared sorry, every year pretty much since 2014. And everyone always comments, Where's Wally? So. <laughs> well, it's a unique photo. Like, you see a lot of sporting photos, but it's one that you see it. And, it, and it's kind of unique with the way the composition's been done on it because it's, it's such a grand photo. Um, and obviously having the right equipment, and, but having the thought to actually go down that other end and shoot something a little bit different. Mm. Um, like I said, that's that's some part of the fun of photography is obviously trying to make your shots look different from everyone else's shot. Because that's, that's, right. that's one yeah. of the hard things today is that there's so much content out there that people are actually, you see a lot of photos and you have seen that, seen that, seen that. And rarely do you see a photo that pops up and it says, oh, that's that's... Gee, that's different. Like, wow, I wonder how he did that. Yeah, I mean, our, our goal as photographers is to take interesting photos. And the way that we measure an interesting photo is how long do people look at it. And so if you've got um, something in sport, for instance, that's at 2.8, it's you know, player with ball. Um, you kind of look at the photo and you, you see player with ball and that's kind of about it. They're not really searching the rest of the image for something. So to do the exact opposite and shoot a crowd at, I think it was F16 off the top of my head. It's a few years ago now. Um, so everyone's in perfect focus from the front row to the back row and there's something like two and a half thousand people in that image and they're all pin sharp. Yeah. So if you look at that image, there's you know, you're, you're held in it with three, four, five minutes. You're kind of looking around for someone you might know. That's right. Well, it's like you you've scan, to... You're scanning because there's so much information captured in there and, and that's the thing that people can actually scan that photo and actually, oh, there might be my uncle or that's right. auntie or someone in there and, and just looking through that photo. With the um, so that's the kind of stuff that you've done, you know, more or less in the professional side of it. What type of stuff do you shoot for yourself? So if you're taking the camera out, what are you shooting for, Colin? What is, what type of stuff? Mm, yeah, still sport. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, as I said, I do a lot with uh, supercars as well. Uh, in particular, working with Mark Horsburgh uh, on that. But uh, last year, or maybe it was the year before, I started looking at some of the sports that don't get a lot of airtime. And uh, I'd invested heavily in underwater housings, which is is something that I, I'd certainly look at uh, and, and have done a lot with. And I started doing some things like underwater um, polo, yep. uh, volleyball, um, sorry, polo, uh, water polo. Yep. And looking at sports that are played in the pool at Chandler. Yep. And started shooting some of those because no one was shooting it. 
Hmm. And uh, although it's not televised and it's not A-grade stuff and it, there's not a lot of money in there, um, it was a lot of fun yep. to do something new. Well, it's getting that something unique that people haven't seen before and, and obviously being able to be in the action hmm. and, and capturing those images from a, from more or less the player's perspective. Because if you're a spectator, you're usually up high and you That's don't right. see that. So you'd be able to take, take spectators actually to another level. And outside of the sport thing, as you'd know, um, because of the, the cost involved for the underwater um, shooting, like yep. we're talking upwards of $40,000 to get the right gear, uh, it was important for me to get underwater quite a bit. So I decided to go through and re-educate myself and, and upgrade my scuba license tickets and so forth. And um, at least once a month, I'll be diving double quad dive somewhere. Um, and I'm attracted to essentially wildlife. So manta rays, whales, um, as you know, I had some pretty lucky encounters with whales in Queensland, particularly in the last um, two years, which has seen quite a bit of media coverage as well. And um, I've just had a lot of fun doing that. So that's not commercially um, profitable for me at all in any way, shape or form, considering the cost involved. Yep. Um, but it's just so much fun. It is well, a, a well, whole other world. Well, the other thing what it's done, Colin, is photography has for wildlife in particular has been able to, to introduce a whole range of people to be able to see animals in the wild and, and probably have a bit more of a respect for trying to protect them. I think photographers have been foremost in you know preserving marine environment and that type of stuff by documenting some of the, the disasters but also documenting the beauty, mm. saying, well, this is so beautiful, we've got to protect it. We've got to, um, you know, look, you know, Queensland, we're lucky, Great Barrier Reef, you know, there's lots of great islands and, and stuff, and I know you've, you've done um, quite a few of those islands and, and, you know, take groups of people out there so they can kind of enjoy that as well. Um, so that would be one of your personal, you know, things that personally that gives you satisfaction as a photographer, catching. Absolutely. Um, I was going to say, in no way, shape or form would I have called myself a greenie in, in life. I still wouldn't these days, but, and I was a, a carefree, average Australian person, um, many years ago but uh, a lot of work that I've done with the Irwins and also with people like Darren Jew uh, and Gary Cranich and uh, Sean Scott over the last few years and, and, and understanding the environment and the ecology down there and seeing it firsthand as to, to how um, not only mankind but nature, mother nature themselves with cyclones and things affects life in the sea and I see to myself that by taking photos and bringing that story to other people in an unbiased fashion, here it is, this is what's happening, there's the photo. Um, I feel like I'm kind of helping share that story for things that people may never have seen. Yep. And so I'm using those camera tools um, to, I guess, educate or help support and educate um, other people who just may be ignorant to the fact, yep. uh, not intentionally ignorant, but just unknown. Uh, because I was unknown as well before. I, I didn't know some of the things that I've seen. and. I think that photography and videography or cinematography is very important to telling that story. Well, the other thing which it does is it actually creates a timeline. So basically, you know, each time you go out and shoot, you're actually documenting the conditions as they were. And, you know, over time, this is what we've seen with some of the photographers now that, you know, they can go back and show you how the environment's changed. So you've got a direct correlation between what's happening in the environment and how it's impacting. Without those photographs, how do you measure? <laughs> you yeah. can't. And I think... And a lot of it's actually been led by people who are not, you know, oceanographers and that type of stuff. It's the people who jump in the water with their camera, take these pictures, 
they get put up on social media, they get spread around, people see them. Um, and I think that that's one of the important roles of photographer. Photographers kind of today can wear many hats. And Absolutely, yeah. The, I was going to say the tourism piece is, is very important too to uh, the Australian economy. And um, I was at Heron Island two years ago and we were on a, a boat with two American tourists. And I said, oh, what made you choose Heron Island? And they said, well, we, we just wanted an island holiday. And they were told that the best island was, um, uh, it was uh, Lizard Island, which is up in the north. But they were full, so they ended up at Heron. And they said, but we were told that this place is all coral bleached. And she said, it's not, it's beautiful. Like the, I'm looking through my snorkel, I'm seeing everything, is, it's wonderful. And I said, well, thanks for coming down to Heron Island and having a look and taking photos. And I'm sure you'll go back to 100 friends over the next few months in the US. And you'll show them those photos and you'll tell the story. But um, it was widely kind of publicised in the US on media that, that the Great Barrier Reef is dying, it's, it's dead, it's coral bleached, yep. and it's not until you see it and understand it. There might be some small bleaching issues in some areas, there's some larger bleaching issues in some areas, I'm not saying there's not, um, but the kind of general misconception is that the whole thing's dead, and that's definitely not the case at all. There are parts that are absolutely pristine and untouched. That, that, and that's the, the other whole big game changer in, in photography is social media, is the fact that now you can take an image, um, you can put it up on one of the social media platforms, and someone in the US, someone in Russia, someone anywhere in the world can basically see that picture and go, hey, that, I really like that, I want to go and, I want to go and see that for myself. Um, and I think that's been a, like a big boom for, and Queensland, like Australia in general is a great destination for um, people to come to because we've got such an abundance like you've touched on some of the stuff you've done with the Irwins up and um, some of the stuff in North Queensland I mean I'm mean, sure you saw some totally different type of stuff to see in the ocean but on and they're places that people normally don't get to go to um, what type of things you know you, you just recently come back from up there what type of things did you see up there that we probably mm. wouldn't see normally well I guess you, you can't get much further uh than the ocean uh, <laughs> going out there. And, and you certainly don't want to get in the water in far north Queensland because of uh, crocodiles. No. But um, there's a couple of properties they have. One is Weeper. Uh, it's called the Steve Irwin Wildlife Reserve. It's a private property which is used for research purposes. It's on the Wenlock River. But um, the interesting thing there is it's not just about crocs. That particular uh, site has uh, somewhat, or just over one third of all native Australian bird species can be found at that site. So if you're into birding, yep. the, the tropical far north part of Queensland, so Weeper right up to Bamaga, all the way to the Cape, is so rich in bird life that you'll spot, if you spent a week up there uh, with a nice long lens and a, and a camera, you'll yep. get a third of all the Australian native species in that one place. So sunrises, sunsets, certainly crocodiles and education is part of it, but we saw so many birds that it just, it was crazy. I, can recall we were going down the highway it was back burning season and there was a lot of black colored or black dark birds on the road up ahead and as the car approached over 150 kites took off and all they're doing is sitting at the edge of the back burning waiting for all the reptiles to come out of the bushes yes. so they've evolved they figured out you know with fire the food will come to us yes <laughs> but i couldn't believe my eyes my camera gears in the back i just my jaw was on the floor like i i've never seen 150 apex predator you know birds of prey yep. in one you know just looking straight in front of me 150 of them they almost blackened the sun completely when they took off 
I was in awe. Yeah. Mm. So I want to talk to you, talk a little bit about um, what you've done with the Canon Collective, and a lot of people probably know you as a result of that um, um, all around Australia. Like people know you, and I think the um, a lot of people talk about um, something like that. How it's I suppose how it's helped their photography, and I mean you've essentially mentored a lot of people over the last five years with the stuff you've done for Collective. So what are the type of things that I mean? Collective started all those years ago, but what are the things that have been your kind of standout events that you've done with the collective? Yeah, um, in terms of absolute uh, job satisfaction, it's kind of hard to go past um, the the Lady Elliot Island or Heron Island related experiences. Those underwater aquatic workshops are quite special because I have just so much fun at them. Um, but outside of that, the work with the Irwin's conservation properties and Australian reptiles, nature, birding has been um, very, how would you say, um, fruitful for the soul. It's been really yep. quite nice. And um, it's hard to not then also headline some of the international places that I've been to. So one that I probably wouldn't have gone and seek myself and, and, and done was the Northern Himalaya region uh, of India. Yep. So when people go to the Himalayas, they generally go to Nepal. They think Mount Everest. Um, the Himalayas actually stretch across five different countries. And the northern province of India, where the Pakistan border meets, it's very dry and arid and desert-like. And uh, up in those areas at 6,000 metres plus, uh, cultures that are really unwesternized and, and don't see too many tourists at all. And just bringing yourself into that culture for a couple of weeks uh, was just absolutely amazing. And having a camera in hand, like that's that's stuff photographers dream of. Dream yeah. of. <laughs> yeah, street photography to the next level. Although there aren't many streets, it's more just a dirt pathway because they don't have cars as such, uh, or many. And um, yeah, that's that's that was just an amazing experience. Um, the other two that come to mind, obviously, is Tonga, swimming with humpback whales yep. for a couple of weeks with Darren. Uh, is absolutely amazing. It's everyone must do that sometime in their lifetime. It's just it's it's incredible. I'm going again this year, uh, and I'm doing a double tour. Yep. So I'll be over there for almost a month um, because that was. It's just yeah. Although money can buy that experience, I'd love to say money can't buy that experience yeah. because you just. It's a smile a minute. Like it's just so much fun, and then uh, the top of most people's list is Africa. Yep. yep. And um, the big five is kind of what everyone wants to see, and I still think. You know, the, the first day I was in Africa, we saw four of the five. Yep. So I thought, this is, oh, this is pretty normal. <laughs> um, but the truth is, we just were at the right place at the right time. Uh, and it wasn't until we, we got that rhino that it really sunk in how special the place is. And that's kind of, again, going back to that conservation message. If we don't educate people on what's there now and, and what humans are doing to you know, affect those numbers, well, how can we change? How yep. do we know that we're doing the wrong thing? And I think that 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 is the as I said to touch on it before about how photography has played a major role I think in protecting the environment because people now can actually appreciate stuff a bit more and and hopefully that people will will take those things on board and I think but the other opportunity is it allows those type of trips allows people to you know everyday people to go with their camera and actually be able to experience that and, and capture those pictures as well hmm. but um, along the way there with the collective um, you've met a lot of people. Um, 
and I know because I know a lot of the same people that that um, you know, and I've seen I've seen people's journey of photography grow enormously um, because of they've been able to get involved, they've been, been able to get some so it's mentoring and help um, with their photography. I mean, that been satisfying to you that part of the job? Yes, um, I was going to say one thing that was difficult at the start of my photographic career was finding anybody who'd tell you anything <laughs> around that uh, year 2000 mark where I started to, to shoot a little bit more commercially. Yep. Um, everyone was very protective of what they knew and the processes that they knew. Uh, no one would share anything really because they saw it as competition. And um, the last thing they needed was some upstart 19-year-old, 20-year-old guy trying to come in and cut their sandwiches. Yep. Um, so it was very difficult uh, to do that. And I, I found that the industry changed somewhere around 2008 onwards. All of a sudden, photographic workshops became a little bit more normal. Uh, and by 2012, which is around the, the era that Collective started to appear, uh, photographic workshops were, were, were done by kind of everyone. Like uh, anyone who'd made a name in photography was doing workshops. Uh, whether that's good or bad, that's for individuals to decide. But the good thing there was, the, the good parts I saw was that there was an ability to learn and educate uh, and also then compensate the person who's tutoring you, uh, you know, in a financial um, aspect. So they're, they're not being... Uh, left out so they are educating and they are passing on their secrets but at the same time they're earning money from that and um and that's a good you know two-way relationship exactly look my i've been to many of the canon events over over the years and the thing that blew me away was the first time i had any exposure to canon masters and the willingness for them to share information it just blew me away that they could ask them absolutely everything nothing was off the nothing was off limits and I think that's been a fantastic, I suppose, from you know what Canon's done is they've fostered this incredible community, yeah, um, which you've you've been a part of and, and you've seen grow. Um, I know that you're moving you're moving out of the, the collective area and you're moving into a new area in your um, you know your, that side professional side of it. Um, but where do you see your photography going? I mean, what do you see the future for your photography? Mm. I was going to touch on just really quickly the. The, the sharing side of things. And I was gonna say there's two ways to look at it as a photographer. If I, if I do a workshop to someone, I'm, I might be telling them all my secrets. And the way that I thought about it, and, and most of the Canon masters would think the same way, that if I can help somebody get better, I'm actually gonna progress myself. And if someone gets to my level, uh, or even exceeds it, it's gonna push me to push harder again. Yes. So it's like a perpetual learning experience for both master and apprentice. Uh, to the point where if, if the people who know kind of everything or a lot of information don't share, that's going to be trapped and it kind of dies with them. And we may not try new things or push ourselves harder. So I think it's very important to share as much knowledge as we can freely and openly um, to be able to um, you know, change those recipes slightly and come up with a better solution. So, But um, sorry, getting back to your question, how's that changed for me? Um, I'll probably do a lot more diving, to be honest, Steve. Yep. Uh, I will be shooting a lot for my own satisfaction in the next 12 months. Yep. Um, as you see, I've still got a, a fairly wide gamut of kit that I carry in the car all the time. And um, I'm always looking to the next adventure. So I've got four dives in January uh, already planned. I've already done uh, two early, and so it's six for the month. Yep. Um, and just having a lot of fun, really. Well, it's important to keep, to keep that fire burning. 
because as photographers, you know, quite often people can get into a situation where they struggle to start go out and shoot. And I always say to people is if, when you get to that point, go and do something you love. Go do something you love, take your camera with you. And that'll help you keep shooting because, um, you know, if you've got to go and shoot something because you have to shoot it, it's never fun. But if you shoot stuff that you enjoy, like you're, you're diving and you're underwater stuff, that you'll tend to want to be able to look for those opportunities to go out and shoot. And, and you will get better and better and better each time you do it. That's right, yeah. It's, I mean, we've had the discussion before this year, I'm not shooting any A-grade sports at this stage. Uh, I might get right back into that uh, later. Usually contracts are done and signed by this point of the, the year, but uh, I, I decided to pull back a little bit from that commercial sporting aspect and I'm going to spend some more time sitting in the grandstand and enjoying it with my kids. Yeah, and I think, look, that's one thing. Always remember as a photographer is it's great to be out there and, and shooting those things, but sometimes you do have to just put the camera down and, and just take it in um, and just enjoy what's happening around you and, and take in... Because you do kind of get a little bit insulated once you're behind the camera. You kind of block out some of the stuff that's going on around you, so you don't kind of always take on all the atmosphere. And... That's right, yeah. At, at first, when I got on the grass, it was all fun. It was like, you know, I'm down here and this is yep. great. and then it became really serious. And then it got to a point where I was shooting other field sports that I hadn't even watched on TV or had sort of any care for, to be honest. And then I realized it was not fun. It was just a job, really. Uh, and so I wanted to get back to that fun. And this, you know, now in my, my career and, and, and where I am in life, it's time for me to start having fun with my kids yep. and introducing them to, you know, Friday night football on the couch, yep. uh, you know, or going out to Suncorp Stadium to see the Reds or the Broncos play on a Sunday afternoon. Um, so I look forward to that stage at this point. And uh, of course, if opportunities come up every now and then, I'm more than happy to jump back in, keep sharp and keep shooting. Yes. Um, but really, this year is going to be all about satisfying myself, and yep. just having fun with my, my camera again. Yep. And look, over, over the time that you've been doing the stuff with um, Canon and even you know, for, before Canon, have you come across any other photographers that have really inspired you? Are there any people that you kind of came across in your, in your cross paths and you've really sat back and been kind of in awe and, and just watched what they've done? Um, to be honest, everyone does. Uh, your collective's given me the ability to work with, um, and we did the math back in December. Uh, it's about 13,000 people have been to a workshop of mine in the last five years. And of course, some people have been, say, 10 or 15 times. So those numbers are a little hard to calculate. But Let's just say everyone's been to five. That's still about two and a half, three thousand people that have come to a workshop of mine uh, in the last five years. And every time you speak to somebody, they've all got a different story. So someone might have a, a really high, um, stressful job, uh, as where someone else is, um, you know, happily unemployed and kind of seeking employment and just chilling. And yep. you've got you've got su such a mix of people, um, you know, religion, race, um, you know. Um, how much you earn per year, it doesn't come into it. Photography is photography. Yep. We're all there with a general um, thing in mind, whether that be sunrise or sunset, or we're going to use some filters to, to slow down a waterfall or something. So we've got kind of a task, but it doesn't matter who the person is uh, or what their background is. We're all on the same level. And if you start talking to some of those people uh, just about them, their general stories, they're all very interesting. And um, at the end of the session, you always say, thanks for coming. And I hope you learned something. And I've never, ever had anybody say, uh, no, I didn't learn something. And there's no value in that. Uh, I think if they did, it would probably destroy my confidence. <laughs> but um, 
it's it's always a pleasure to work with the people. So there's probably not any one standout. Um, I have had the great pleasure of working very closely with Darren Jew, uh, Mark Horsburgh, um, Crystal Wright, uh, Kelly Brown, who are all Canon masters as well. Um, that's one of the advantages of being a Canon ambassador is working with those people. Um, and the other one that's been uh, kind of eye-opening is Abraham Joff, yep. who is not so known in the photographic industry, but as a cinematographer, um, to come from really a small Australian base to now be producing and directing things for people like Nat Geo, Animal Planet, and Netflix. Yep. That's massive. That is yep. just huge. I wanted to talk to you about um, you know, um, video, and that's something I know that you've done a little bit of study and you shot a little bit more of video. Where do you see video in the future? I mean, it's going to be an integral part of a photographer's <laughs> you know, workload. Yeah. Yeah, so video, a uh, funny, funny conversation. I just reminded myself of a moment many years ago where I said confidently in a meeting um, that video is the most engaging content. Photos are great, video is even more engaging. And I was referring to how people interact on social media. This is about 2011 or 10. Yep. So Facebook's been around for a while. Instagram was around for a while, didn't do video at that stage. But I, I sat there and they said, oh, no, video is not important at this stage. You know, focus on this. Mm, okay. 2019's here now yeah. um, and the reports show us video is um, up to 10 times more engaging than stills and that's why Instagram had to change for instance now they incorporate stories and they really encourage video and when they first launched video remember it was a small 15 second clip yes, yep. now it's 60 seconds Yes, I'm sure in the next few years we're going to see 3 minutes or more as an ability but it is very important because if we just take the wedding portrait industry as an example um Photography has been important since the day dot. You know, wedding albums were very um, important through the 90s. Um, come for, fast forward to now, uh, almost all wedding photographers are offering shoot to disc yep. with no print option. So you just go and get your own prints there thereafter. And so the wedding industry has actually evolved every 10 years essentially into what is today's um, standard. And what you'll notice in the last 10 years is videography has come back fairly uh, strongly yep. um, and the way that the videos are being done is different to just recording the entire ceremony now it's you know snippets and pieces uh, from an entire day or two or three days worth of activity put into about a seven minute clip and if you have a look at the really good ones on YouTube some of them are over a million views mm. and these well, are people's weddings that you don't even know but the cinematography is that engaging that you've watched it like and I think that's that's the power of video. And look, the thing that these days is that, you know, your your modern DSLR camera does a pretty good job of video as well. So you've got you have got this um, bit of kit in your hands that you can be taking still photos, and then the next minute you can be actually shooting video. And I think the style of video has changed. Like you said, now um, someone who can take those clips and then put them together in such a way that becomes it just draws you in. Mm. And it's, I mean, a good photograph is great. We, you know, we talked about, you know, see a great photograph and it draws you in and you, you're scanning the photo and you're trying to find those interesting bits in there. But it has a limited catch time. Whereas, like you said, a few minutes of video, you've got someone, you've got them. And I think you're right. All the social media, you can see now the trend for video is, is growing and they'll continue to, to change that platform. And even now on Instagram stories now, you used to do, it was a 15 second story. Now if you can actually do a minute story and it just puts four 15 second blocks together. That's right. So they're starting to understand that, oh, we need to give people 
platform to be able to do this. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And they've also got IGTV, which is kind of not unlimited, but it's in the minutes range. Yeah, it's about 10 minutes. I think you can do about 10 minutes on, on that. So, and again, it's kind of, I think that's they're trying to, obviously, um, you know, uh, YouTube, they're trying to cut into that market there. Um, I think it's a challenge too that um, shooting in um, portrait rather than landscape for, for video, it's kind of to me, I always, I always think about video as being landscape, uh, not portrait. But um, but again, that's the the platforms that people are watching it on. It suits that platform. Exactly. Yeah, and and I know the portrait video has annoyed a lot of people over the last <laughs> ten years. Um, but the truth is, you've got to think about how it's being watched, and if people are watching it on their smart devices such as iPads and and Android and iPhones, they're in a portrait orientation as they sit in your hand comfortably and ergonomically. Um, so the chances of them twisting it. 90 degrees to go full screen. Yep, that might work for a Netflix movie where they're invested in the time to watch that. But for something that they're scrolling past in Instagram, then vertical is definitely the way to go. Yeah. Um, and, and we've seen even in uh, our technology and, and even Adobe and Avid and other you know, uh, editing softwares yep. that they've actually got templates now for vertical video and we can do 4K vertical and things yep. like that. So it's kind of changed the technology back end to be able to to do the norm, you might call it, um, in today's output device um, formats. Yep, and that's a good segue because you're talking about post and I wanted to talk to you about your workflow with stuff and how much post um, um, plays in, in your work, work workflow. Do you obviously shoot um, JPEG and RAW in the camera then you're, or just, you're just shooting RAW or? Yeah, so um, if we put sport aside for a moment, commercial sport, and we just talk all of my photography, it's all raw, yep. it's raw only. Uh, and then I use Adobe Lightroom to ingest catalog, metadata tag, copyright, keywords, uh, and then I develop in Lightroom uh, everything, and then I export the JPEGs for you know, use on FTP server, social yep. media, and print. Um, I rarely use Photoshop at all. Yep. Uh, Photoshop's generally only used for four prints per year, which is for the um, <laughs> the APRA awards. Yep. That's more about getting sizing correct because you could be disqualified if you're out by two millimeters. So uh, really, I don't use Photoshop at all. And it's all done in Lightroom. So everything's in Lightroom. When we're talking about sport, uh, sport has a precedence now where it has to be JPEG out of camera. And that's to do with an authenticity Yes. issue that occurred four or five years ago within the industry uh, in the United States, which is then filtered through to Australia. So essentially all of our sports now JPEG out of camera. They will not accept a raw that's been processed to JPEG. Yep. Has to be JPEG out of camera. Yep. Uh, and the way that I do that is I, I use the 1DX Mark II, which has a, a, an optional Wi-Fi dongle called a WFT-E8. Yep. So to the card, JPEG goes, and that's basically a backup. And then a small JPEG goes off to the FTP server instantly. So from the time I click the button to the time it could be seen on the FTP server, depending on the connection speed, yep. um, can be as little as 13 seconds. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on, on post? Because it, this is a, an area that divides a lot of people. A lot of photographers, you know, you've talked about sports straight out of camera and the, there, is a, there is a kind of a, a group of people who believe that all photography should be straight out of camera, nothing should happen to it. Sure. And then there's obviously a group who, who believe, you know, it's, it's, it's basically you've got these tools and you can, you can basically take an image now and you can develop it and you can pull it apart, move it around. I mean, it's, sometimes it is difficult to get it right in camera because you've got challenging things. And I mean, you know, putting a filter in front of a camera, is that cheating? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know what? Um, 
everyone's right. You know, is straight out of camera right? Yeah, sure is. Is editing right? Yep, go for it. Um, the way to look at it, so there's a hashtag S-O-O-C, straight yes, out of yep, camera. Yep. Yep. So if you are looking for inspiration for very high quality and engaging, good straight out of camera shots, maybe that's what you should search on Instagram and follow some of those people who really um, post that genre. Uh, and that's that's an art form. So with sport, you have to get it right. If you know, there's no lifting the shadows later or dropping yep. the highlights, you have to get it right. And that's where the art really is. And as a sports photographer, I used to look at, say, someone like Kelly Brown, who takes lovely um, baby and newborn shots. And they are photoshopped and, and, yep. and there is some editing involved there, which is fine. I look at it and say, that's so hard, I can't do that because I didn't know how. Yep. And so, you know, I see her do it and I think there's a whole other art that I don't understand there. And although I haven't spoken to her about it, she'd probably look at a game of sport and say, you know, the, the pressure of JPEG out of camera to be uh, media worthy within 13 seconds, that probably sounds hard to her. Yep. Like I said, I haven't spoken to her about it, but... I feel that when you look at someone else's main genre, if you're not equipped or educated in what they do, it may feel like it's harder or daunting and therefore you may judge it differently. But the truth is, uh, when I do Lightroom workshops, for instance, I never call it editing. Yep. In Lightroom, we are developing. Developing. And it's true because the tab at the top says develop. Yes, it does. And we've been developing images since day dot. Exactly. So straight out of camera, if you took your... 24 roll of film down to Rabbit Photo or Kodak and paid you $10 for your 24-hour service and you came back the next day, if you believed that that was straight out of camera, then you are a liar. Or sorry, you've lied to yourself. Well, look, I remember my days. I I started very early. Um, I was fortunate to grow up with a darkroom at home. So from the age of seven onwards, I was in a darkroom and learned lots of tricks in the darkroom on what you could do for photo. And quite often the, the print that you end up showing somebody underwent a lot of different processes to get it to that stage. That's correct, yeah. Um, so it's been around for ever than a day. Post has always been there. And and it is developing because that's the thing. And look, um, I heard um, a photographer once talk about um, justifying post-production. So sometimes you know, you, you'll see a scene and you'll see it in a particular way, but the camera doesn't capture the way you envisage the scene should be. Mm-hmm. And those tools give you the ability to be able to create an image how you feel the it should look. And I, and I yeah. think that's so true. Like that's, the that's right. So if, if we break it down to three levels, if, if we were that, uh, that person who took the negatives out, took it to rabbit photo, what I'm trying to say is they would then do your light, your density, your contrast. Color matching. They do color the matching. Yep. Um, yes, it might be a three-second job, but they are manipulating that negative yep. that you took. Um, then you've got the next level, which is like a Lightroom user who develops some shadows, some highlights, maybe some clarity and sharpness, but still they're not really manipulating the scene outside what the camera captured. So this is what I would call a developing type photo. Where you edit or Photoshop something is when you might bring an element in that wasn't there originally. Or remove an element. Or remove an element, yeah. Mm. And the, the per- first person that comes to mind who is a master of that is Damien Bredberg. Yep. And his work is absolutely magical um, but let me put it to you this way he's not trying to falsify or, or trick anybody let's say you're a massive brand and you have a marketing budget for some posters that's twenty thousand dollars and what you're asking them to do in reality might be a half a million dollar job so how do you take that car and throw it off a cliff without yep. doing it 
or how do you fly that airplane over the opera house when you're not allowed to? Yep. You take a photo of the plane over there, you take a photo of the opera house yep. over there, or you know, car and there's a cliff. You put the two together, you obviously add some special effects in terms of, of dust and light and, and things, and, and then you blend them together in Photoshop and you come up with an, uh, an ad for the yep. $20,000 budget and you make money from it. So as a working commercial photographer, I don't feel that they're tricking anybody or lying to anybody. They're simply meeting the client's brief at a, a cost that's preconceived. Yep. Um, and the better ones are doing it to a point where you go, how did they do that? And that is the trick to composite photography is, is really having the person question the, you know, the realism. And I think that's, look, it's a match made in heaven. Um, composite photography for marketing purposes is really a great, great mix. And I've seen Damien working and I've seen his work and you do look at some of the images and, and you're just in awe of, of, of how it all seamlessly fits together. And I think that's, um, um, like I said, he's not trying to, they're not trying to trick anybody, but I mean, it's a useful tool. And I think people, like I said, there's so many different avenues available to the digital photographer today with the, the equipment, you know, the glass, the, the, the bodies, the, all the other bits and pieces after you've taken the shot um, that you can do so much with it. It's actually introduced suddenly more people to photography. There's more people shooting today. And the other thing is a lot of people are walking around with a camera in their pocket. That's right. So you're finding that more and more people are discovering photography. Do you see photography, I mean, there's an, you know, you've got always going to have your professional photographers, but there seems to be the enthusiast um, group of photographers. That seems to be a growing trend. I mean, I just see more and more people. Is that something that you've kind of seen happen? Yeah. Um, I think that there's more people own cameras than ever before, that's for sure. Um, speaking from a commercial aspect, we, spe- we sell more cameras than ever before, uh, and that's a, a cost of affordability uh, situation, but also an education piece. Um, I think what you might be referring to is how many people have like photographic business pages for, on Facebook, for example, as opposed to 25 years ago, a studio would have to be a fixed location with rent and staff yep. and cycloramas and studio lighting. And those businesses are... Uh, a few of these days. There's literally only about a dozen uh, top-end studios in Brisbane today as we speak. Yep. Um, but if you looked on Facebook, if you looked up Brisbane photographers, there could be 20,000. I, I don't know. There's a, there's there's a, a lot. lot. I know. Look, I've, I've yeah. done some searches and quite often it, it just amazed me the number, of, the number of people's names of the word photographer yeah. after it on Facebook is quite um, astounding. And I think it's because technology allows them to be able to do yeah. that and not have... You know, and, and the other thing too these days too, I mean, um, there's a whole market of renting stuff. Yeah. You know, so you can rent rent lenses and equipment and studio space and all that type of stuff. So you don't have to invest so much in yeah. the stuff. If, if you break down the people with those pages and have photographer after them, I think you'll find a good half of them. It's just their photography page. Like it's they don't want to saturate their standard Facebook feed yep. with photography. They they do it over here. So to them, it's a hobby. Yep. Uh, a bit like fishing to people as a hobby yep. or uh, working on cars on the weekends a hobby or going water skiing or that yep. sort of thing. So probably more than half are not in it for a business. Um, maybe only a quarter are serious about turning a, a dollar from their photography and they see that as a cheap way to market without too much exposure and that's okay. Uh, it's a great method of doing that. Um, but yeah, I think that the term of having a first name, surname, photographer or photography uh, in many cases, and then the majority of the market will be just to showcase what they're doing with their hobby. Yes, yep, yep. 
So if we took photography out of your life, what other things um, are you passionate about? I know you you motorsport and, and cars and things like that, that to, you have an interest obviously in those. So what other type of things, like I said, kind of you're passionate about um, <laughs> outside of yeah. photography? Uh, I guess if you look at an average weekend for me, uh, you know, I'm a, I wouldn't say that I am a property developer, but I have a lot of interests around the, the building and construction and, and, and the Bunnings type supported industries. Yes. So there's probably a builder listening to this now thinking, you know, Colin Baker builder. Like it, <laughs> it could be the same way as like, you know, photography page yep. on Facebook. Uh, and I might share some of my DIY stuff on there, but no, I, I like getting my hands dirty. I really, really like my lawn. Uh, yep. I've put a lot of time into uh, my gardens and, and gardening, yep. which sounds really strange for someone in my age group, but I don't know, I get it like a great satisfaction once it's mowed and it's all looks nice pris- and pristine. And and... I get the app out on my phone and start the sprinklers because I'm a connected kind of guy. <laughs> yep. uh, and I just have great satisfaction in that. So the activities with the kids, spend a lot of time at the, the beach, jet skiing uh, and boating and things and, and um, spending a lot of time with them and doing their activities. So they're at an age now where they have their own things that they like to do. Yep. Um, I'm not really into colouring in unicorns yet. So yep. I'm hoping that the youngest one uh, evolves into something fun like um, jet skiing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll try and steer her that way. Yep. Um, so yeah, outside of the photography piece and, and the general work piece, uh, I'm just a normal person like anyone yep. else with um, so, so responsibilities. You do, and, you do like your DIY type projects and that type of stuff. Yeah. Putting yeah. stuff together and yeah. love just like anyone else with with photography, they're YouTubing how to do things. Sometimes I'll YouTube how someone does a certain aspect of gardening or yeah, construction. Yeah, if you get if you get something's eating the lawn, you go, is that a lawn grub? What is it? Well, what have I got to do to fix that? Exactly. Yeah. So I'm doing the same thing in those categories, I guess, as a as a homeowner. Yeah. yeah. So, so where do you see yourself um, ten years from now? What's the <laughs> yeah, I had that. Uh, we had that conversation this morning, and uh, I, you know, um, I don't personally see myself as being a, a managing director or anything. But um, you know, when someone from HR asks you what do you want to do, you say I want to be the boss. Yeah. So no, I said um, I've had a long career in Canon. We didn't touch on that too much, but I started with them in two thousand and six initially as an account representative and a, a kind of a, a go to person for taking what's known in the retail industry and adapting that to what consumers want, yep. to what pros want. And so I was kind of the first person within that organization to have covered all of those bases and bring that to them. Yep. Uh, and I see over the next 10 years, I'll probably evolve in a national role within Canon to assist other photographers and accountant types to merge and be a little bit more cross hybrid thinking. Yep. Um, I know Canon 15 years ago was all about numbers like accounting, you know, so the people would come to, the store and they'd be wearing a tie and a suit and, and it, the, the camera interaction was not uh, realistic with what the Australian consumer was, you know, who they were. Yep. As we're a working photographer on the sporting fields, so they're, they're wearing cargo shorts and a t-shirt, you know, and a hat because they're sun smart. And that's yep. that's what their uniform looks like. So do they want to speak to someone in a tie and a suit? Probably not. No. They just want to know someone who's doing the job that they're doing and how to make the camera work for them. Um, and so I bridged that gap a little bit with assistance of, of many other people in our team. And I still see that occurring over the next 10 years is to try and bring that corporate um, look back to what, what's reality? Yep. What are people buying? How do they use it? 
and look, the thing about, and we'll touch on it, it's not an ad for Canon, but Canon, Canon does a few things that are a bit unique in, in that space that as far as when someone buys a product typically from a, someone, you buy the product, and pretty much that's end of story. You take the product home, you take it out the box, you fumble through, you, you get it working to a degree and you persevere with it and that's kind of it. Canon have taken on this philosophy with the um, um, Canon Collective that basically we'll sell your product, but then we're going to show you how to use the product and we're going to show you how to get the most out of the product and we're going to you know, encourage you to push you out of your comfort zone to get so you really get value for money. And I think that's where Canon have just done so much, so different to everybody else. So, Definitely, yeah. Um, and I should say that you know, the greatest form of flattery is, is um, imitation and a lot of the other brands are now starting to educate their consumers on their process. But um, we weren't the first industry to do it, uh, to be honest. We were the first in the camera and electronics industry to do it. But if you take your customer through an education process and it sounds like uh, too much marketing kind of hype, but the true reality of it was that we found that in around 2010, 2011, DSLRs were kind of the most popular under the Christmas tree item. Yep. And when we delved into it, there was about 70% of recipients just got their camera, said, thank you, Merry Christmas, yep. wow, what a wonderful gift. And within six months, they'd put it in the cupboard. Yep, and that's where it's at. And they weren't using it. Yep. And so all of a sudden, we had a kind of a thought to ourselves that we have sold something that hasn't been perceived to be of the value that they have been charged or they've paid. And so we thought we need to get these people to bring their cameras back out and start using them. Of course, on the back end of that, there's going to be more sales and more return sales, but that wasn't the focus at the start. The start was to focus and really understand why that was happening. And then we found Collective gave us all of the information we needed about the market, um, really, to be honest. We could talk to people who are buying the stuff and say, what do you do with it? Yep. What, what turns, you know, you know, for you, what's what's going through your mind, uh, and and we were able to then adapt that, and then collective became um, more about uh, bringing people's cameras out, but it, it became more about that than a, like a more of a friendship and a community was starting to build. Then from that, a new product would come out, bring it to a collective event, uh, people would use it, and you know they weren't even considering buying it two days ago, and then they've used it and they've gone and purchased it, so yep. it actually returned the sale very quick. And then as the retailers appreciated that because we were kind of selling the product on their behalf, they just had to facilitate the order. Uh, of course, they started telling the other camera brands about what we were doing and, uh, and they're all kind of doing similar things now, not to the same extent because we're lucky enough to have a dedicated team of, of 10 people, yep. including, um, including the boss, to be able to, um, to, make to, it to do this, yeah. 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 Uh, as where some of the other brands, the person who's doing that education is also the marketing person, is also the salesperson, is also the service guy. So it can be a, a bit hard to provide uh, the 2,200 events that we did last year. Yep. Look, Colin, it's been really great to sit down and talk to you and, and for you to share a bit about where your photography journey has taken you and, and some of the things that you've been involved with. Um, j just in closing, is there anything... Um, you know, that you, you think that you'd like to share with people about photography or about your photography? Um, I think that with life, I was thinking this the other night, this is pretty loose philosophy, yeah. but with life, every every year seems to go faster. Life seems to get harder. 
Yeah. I think as a kid, you're growing up, you're thinking this is all pretty straightforward and yep. geez, I wish mum and dad let me do that. And then you become a young adult and you kind of get your own way and you're thinking life couldn't get any sweeter. And you know, as, as time goes on, you change, you, you mature, your flavors evolve. Yep. So where you are in your photographic journey today is no different to that. So, you know, I did sport for years. I got to a point now where I don't feel I need to do sport anymore. Um, have a little break from it and, yep. and go and be dad. Yep. And, uh, and and have some fun underwater. And I'm sure in 10 years time, I'll, I don't know, I'll probably pick up and start doing a whole lot of, uh, you know, something else. Uh, astrophotography can get really expensive, I know. Yes. <laughs> a yeah. friend of mine does it. Um, if you think pointing up a telescope and taking photos of nebula is great. Um, he spent close to $200,000 on his array. That, and that's I look a, at that that's and, a serious, serious enthusiast. <laughs> <laughs> I look at his stuff and say, you know what? I, I can't afford to love it. <laughs> you know, as a, a 5D Mark IV at, at $3,500. Yeah, I can afford to love that. But yep. yeah, not, not his stuff. But I think um, in general, everyone's flavors will, will evolve. And, and I hear a lot of people that say, I'm not in love with my photography at the moment or I need to take a break from it. And I think that's great that you've identified that. And I wouldn't say that you're not going to do it anymore. Like I won't not do sport anymore. I'm just having a little break from that. Yep. Um, and I'm pursuing other things and, and the flavors will, will kind of mature and emulsify and, you know, it'll brew and, yep. and something even better will come out in time. But I guess even when life deals you a, a hard set of cards, there's going to be some better ones around the corner. We just got to remember that. Yep. And um, I guess as time gets faster, we need to um, value it more and, and do more with the people that we love and, and care for. And, yep. and I think for me, um, in the photography this year, other than the underwater stuff, I even said to my wife this weekend, I want to take some, some updated portraits of the kids. Yes. Because I haven't done it for a while. Yes. Yep. It's uh, <laughs> the, the bane of a photographer never takes photos. Yeah, that's right. It's like, it's like yeah. the builder who's got the door that squeaks and <laughs> yeah. it's blaming. Yeah, so it's those moments and those those slices in time that are so precious to us and so close to our hearts that I think um, uh, that'll that'll give me the most weight and importance this year. Well, mate, look, I wish you all the best, and I know you're going to a new role of Canon, and I know you'll you'll absolutely smash it because you do get in there and give it 110. percent um, So, look, thank you for coming in and sharing that with us today, and um, we'll put up all your details on the podcast where people can actually maybe go and have a look at some of your some of your work as well because I think it's always interesting to see, hear someone then go and see what they actually shoot. So thanks, Colin. Certainly. Thanks for having me, Steve. Not a problem. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Photo Mission Exposure. Be sure to tune in soon.